Amen. Thank you, Ken and Mary. I appreciate it very much, and glad to have you here with us this morning. Appreciate everyone that's uh, braved the weather to get out and through the rain and everything. And I don't think it's over with. I think we have more, more coming, <clears throat> from what I could see anyway. Oh, I, what I did, I messed my notes up here. I did want to mention, too, about the Carneys, Dave and Diane Carney, and the loss of their son. They were missionaries, and they were in Singapore when they got the news. So they've been traveling back. I don't know if they're back yet or not. It's you know quite an ordeal to get that's clear around the other side of the world. So they had quite a ways to go. And then the Perrys are on their way to Michigan for a family camp that they go to every year. So he sent me a text this morning letting me know about that. And so... We're going to be in prayer for them too. They're they're traveling for wow. That's probably a, at least a ten or eleven hour trip for them. I suspect. So that's quite a ways to go. And that first verse that Jerry read this morning, uh, I recognized it right away. It's Psalm forty eight fourteen, and Janet and I picked that many years ago through her influence I might say uh, as our kind of a and it wasn't really a family verse because we didn't have a family then but it was sort of a couple verse I guess you'll say (laughs) Uh, our marriage verse or whatever for this God is our God forever and ever he will be our guide even unto death and I remember when she suggested that I thought that's a cool verse I really like that so we've we've kind of stuck on that one I uh, haven't referred to it for a while, but I thought I would mention that this morning. All right, I want to turn to Colossians this morning, and really, it's going to be kind of a survey, I guess, of the, at least the first couple of chapters, uh, a sweep, as you will, or as it were, across the the larger portion of what Paul is trying to teach us here. And I wanted to focus in on that because we find Ephesians and Colossians being quite similar in many ways. And whereas Paul focuses in Ephesians on the centrality of the church, in Colossians he focuses on the centrality of Christ. And of course, all in all, it's one and the same. I mean, you can't have an effective church without an effective Christ, without focusing on him. So if you're at the center of the church, you have to be in the center with Christ and vice versa. So this morning we want to look at Colossians. And beginning in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul just gives us his customary greeting uh, of being an apostle preaching grace and peace as a greeting to the folks at Colossae. And then in verses 3 through 8, Paul relates how he heard of their faith. Now, this was a city that Paul had apparently not been to in Colossae. And so he had heard of their faith and their love to all the saints. And I think that's really important to understand that in Paul's mind, their faith and their love to the saints were on equal ground. 
And we don't often focus on the love of the saints. We focus on the common faith. We focus on having a unified faith and proper doctrine so that our faith is held in the right place. But we don't think about the the love. And later on, we find that Paul's emphasis here in Colossians is that our hearts might be knit together in love. And this is a strong emphasis of Paul within the the body of Christ. So, in verse 5, he tells them about this faith. And he says, it is for, or I really think the word because, or on account of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. And you'll notice then, right after that, he says, Whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. And this is a hint at this point as to what the content of the gospel was that he was relating to concerning the believers in this city of Colossae. He says, It is the hope which is laid up for you Literally, in the heavens. Now, I think also it should be obvious to us that Paul is, Paul having not been to Colossae, but the gospel having been preached there, he's making some further assumptions about their knowledge of the gospel. And so they obviously knew more than this. And this was not all that was proclaimed to them about In other words, there was more than just the hope which is laid up for you in the heavens. They were told more than that. Paul briefly summarizing the gospel in this statement. And I think it's good. So that we understand when we read about the gospel in other places and we find other statements or an expansion on it, that we understand what Paul is talking about. Or even other writers like Peter. You know, over in 1 Peter chapter 1, for instance, in verse 4, Peter there says concerning our faith, in verse 3, he tells us there that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again, or birthed us again, unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Well, this is a Just nothing more than a further expansion of what Paul's talking about here in Colossae. And to the believers there. Is that in the gospel, the hope that is laid up for them in heaven concerns an inheritance. And that it's an inheritance that is undefiled. And that fadeth not away. And it's reserved, kept there in heaven. Being kept there. For us. So, part and parcel of the gospel then to the believers at Colossae. 
because of or on account of the hope that is laid up for you, or we could say here, reserved for you in the heavens. The point being then between Peter and Paul both is that there is an inheritance and it's reserved, being held there in heaven for us who believe in Jesus Christ, who understand the purpose of the gospel and the good news that was delivered unto them concerns something that they, could, they were to look forward to with a future hope and a prospect. It gave them purpose of life, purpose of living, and it also gave them a reason for continuing on in the faith. In other words, this wasn't just something that they met up with. One day somebody came along preaching the gospel and they received Christ and then, you know, that was it. And they just went about their way and say, hey, I believe that. And off they go and, and you know, they're, that's the end of it. It was something that changed their life. It was something that directed them in a new way of living. And the reason was because in this gospel, when they received it, they received a, a, a master one who was Lord over their life, who would direct them in regards to this coming inheritance. There was a specific way in which the master was teaching them and directing them to live in view of this coming inheritance. And so then he goes on in verse 6 to say, Concerning this gospel, he says, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and it's bringing forth fruit. This gospel is being preached all over the place, Paul's saying. Many people are about preaching this gospel, and it's bearing fruit. People are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like it did in you, he says, since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. Consequently, verse 7, it uh, would appear here from this verse he, that Epaphras would be the one who had brought the gospel to them. He says, as you also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant or our fellow slave, who is for you a faithful minister or servant of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. And there we see that concept of love brought forth again. Epaphras had related to Paul concerning the love that was in the body of believers at Colossae. Now, he goes on in verse 9 through 14, he has a, a long prayer then that he talks about in which he prays for the believers at Colossae. And he has some very specific things that he's praying for. And he prays for growth, maturity. He prays that they might be filled with the knowledge of God. 
And we understand that word there. That's the epignosis of God. The full, complete, precise knowledge of God. The correct knowledge of God as one expresses it. Filled with the knowledge of his will. How? In wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now you'll notice that these things are abstract terms. They're not concrete terms having to do with things of the earth. But things of heaven. Wisdom and spiritual understanding. And he appeals to them in verse 10. He's praying for them that they would walk worthy of the Lord in a pleasing manner. That they would bear fruit in every good work. And that they would be increasing or growing in the knowledge of God. And we find that same word here again. The epinosis, knowledge of God. The mature knowledge of God. That's what he's called us to do. I like how one writer uh, expressed Christianity today is that too much of our preaching today is getting people in the door. In other words, we preach the gospel of salvation. People come to Christ and they're saved. And we get them inside the door, but we don't lead them on into the palace. (laughs) We don't lead them on what's past the door. And consequently, there's a big crowd hanging around the door. Or maybe in John 10, as Jesus stated it, they're all standing there at the door of the sheep gate, the sheepfold, waiting at the gate. That's all the farther they got. Instead of getting into the fold and becoming part and parcel of Christ's sheep. And that's what this prayer here is all about. Paul is wanting us to move on to maturity. And then in verse 11, we're to move on to be strengthened for what? Steadfastness and patience. Steadfastness and patience, or this word steadfastness, cheerful endurance. And patience is long-suffering. Cheerful endurance. How can you imagine getting through life cheerfully with the things we have to do endure? Thinking about the families this morning who've lost loved ones. And if they're walking the path of faith and doing so in a cheerful manner. Patiently, lovingly enduring the trials that we have to go through in life. But quite frankly, that's our calling. That's what he's called us to do. And then he goes on to say, with thankfulness, thanking our Father in heaven who who filled us to share in the portion of the inheritance. Look at that verse, verse 12. He says there that he has made us meet, fitted us, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And he has delivered us from the power of darkness or the domain of darkness and translated us or moved us into the kingdom of his dear son. 
If you, you know, turn with me back to Second Kings for a moment. I want us to look at something back here. Second Kings chapter 17. Well, if I get over to Second Kings, here we are. Second Kings 17, verse 23. Now, if you just think logically, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, you know, we've got Saul, David, Solomon, and then we have the dividing of the kingdom, and we have the various kings throughout the life of the northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom Judah. And so as you progress and move your way through uh, you know, when you get the second kings, you think, well, yeah, we're getting somewhere near the end. And you also know that over the progress of time, there was a total deterioration on the part of Israel and ultimately Judah into where they were carried away into captivity. And you'll notice there in verse 23, well, let's just read uh, verse 21. He says, For he rent Israel from the house of David, and they made Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, king. And Jeroboam drave Israel from following the Lord and made them sin, a great sin. You remember what that sin was? Of all the kings in, in North, uh, the northern kingdom, in Israel, the constant refrain and repetition was they made Israel to sin like the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And that sin was the making of the golden calves, one for the northern part of the area of Israel and one for the southern part. Over and over and over again, this great sin. Verse 22, For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did, they departed not from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. As he had said by all his servants, the prophets, so was Israel carried away out of their own land to Assyria unto this day. Now, if you look at that phrase, until the Lord removed, and the word removed in the Septuagint is the same word as translated in Colossians 1.13. So you see here that the northern kingdom was physically removed from their cities and they were taken away and carried off and placed in the cities of Assyria. So what are we trying to say? That there is a literal movement, a translation, a transfer from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And he says there in verse 12 that it's he has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. So there is this sphere or realm in which we have been placed as we await that hope of glory, this hope which has been reserved for us in heaven. 
And then he sums it all up in verse 14 by saying, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. That was our purchase. This removal and transference took place because he purchased us with his blood. That's what redemption is. Now, if you look ahead just a little bit, I don't want to look at every verse here. Verse 18, concerning Christ, he says, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now that's a vital verse. It helps us to understand Christ is in heaven. He is the head. The head is in heaven. We are members of his body. The body is on earth. The head is in heaven. The head directs the body so that he might have the preeminence. That's why he is our master and we are his slaves to do his bidding and his will in all things. And it pleased the Father, in verse 19, that in him should all the fullness dwell. In verse 21, You that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So we were at one point alienated, just like Ephesians chapter 2 says. We were walking according to the course of this world. And then we were reconciled through faith by his grace. He brought us to him. And then he, it tells us what's to be accomplished through that. To present us to God holy, which is set apart, unblameable, that means without any fault, and unreprovable, which means beyond reproach. Well, that seems like a high calling to me because I wonder where I fit in in such a thing as being without fault and unblameable, without reproach. But he is able to do that. Jude tells us in verse 23 of his little epistle, he is able to present you faultless. He can do that. That's our ultimate goal. So that we might take possession of our inheritance. That which he is holding there reserved in heaven for us. Now, in verse 23, then, you notice that verse, if. If indeed you continue, that ye there is plural, all of you, he's speaking to the whole church at Colossae, if all of you will continue in the faith, that is, if you will remain in the faith, if you will abide in the faith, then he says, grounded and settled, and not be moved away, from the hope of the gospel, ah, then, then what? Then we will have 
our inheritance. But it demands that we remain and abide in the faith. Paul tells him there, you have heard this gospel. It was preached to every creature which is under heaven. I, Paul, have been made a minister, and I now rejoice in suffering for you, and so on. Then look at verse 26, 25 and 26. He says, I was made a minister of this to fulfill the word of God. And in verse 26, he says, even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. This mystery, what is it? To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This great mystery of Jesus Christ, hidden from ages past, now being made known among the Gentiles. And this was Paul's great ministry and privilege to preach that gospel among the Gentiles. You and me, whom we preach in verse 28, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Why? Preaching, warning, teaching. Preaching and warning and teaching. Every man. Why? What did he do that for? That we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus complete and whole. That's the only way that you'll ever take possession of your inheritance is if you are presented to him complete, mature, and whole. Consequently, in verse 29, he says, Wherefore I also labor, striving, working hard, according to his working, which works in me in mightily or in great power, for I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and so on, and as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Now what I'm wanting to get down to here is, in verse 2, that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement or the epinosis, the full, complete, mature knowledge of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is what I'm speaking of here. What Paul is saying is that the centrality of the message of the book of Colossians is that everything... The tre- all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. Well, if we could only mine the Lord Jesus, we would have every source and every little bit of wisdom and knowledge that we need to successfully make the journey. Now, in this chapter... Paul gives four things that he wants us to guard against. And this is really what got me going on this whole study here. In verse 4, he says, And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. 
To beguile means to, to deceive you with false reasoning. Beguile with false or enticing words. To mislead you. To make you depart from the truth of the gospel. Beware, lest any of that happens. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Beholding your order. This church was following the pattern of what they were expected to do and to be. And Paul, Paul, though not ever having been there and only heard about them through Epaphras, was taking great joy in this and their steadfastness. And so he admonishes them then to, to, to continue to walk in him, rooted and built up in him. Rooted, built up, and established in the faith. That was their antidote for failure. That was their antidote for being able to remain and abide and continue in the faith over here in chapter 1 and verse 23. Was to be rooted and built up and established in the faith in Christ. Then he warns them again in verse 8, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. To be spoiled, to be taken captive, like you were a soldier and you were robbed, taken away as booty, and somebody carries you off. And notice what he says after the tradition of men. It is so easy to establish words of tradition when you have a body of people come together and you begin to practice your Christianity. And then we begin to think, well, this is a good idea. Or we, you know, we do this and then we do it year after year. And then it becomes, or week after week, and it becomes a practice. And then it becomes a tradition. Not remembering that this is the ground of our faith, not the tradition of men. And the rudiments of the world. The rudiments of the world. The rudiments of the world, or some translate that as the elementary principles of the world, of the cosmos, has to do with the way the 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 world functions it has to do with the principles that the world follows and that we're to beware of our own selves that we don't fall into the trap as a church or as an individual to falling into the trap of following following those principles and not after Christ because I love the summation for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. 
Now, we've seen the word head already in verse 18 of chapter 1. Now we see it again here in, in, in chapter 2, verse 10. He is the head of all principality and power. And the matter of circumcision... He says, in whom you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You know, there is a circumcision of the flesh that takes away flesh. But that's not what he's talking about. When you have received Christ, there is a circumcision that takes place in the heart. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 2. Circumcised in the heart. And he talks about the Gentiles there having been circumcised in heart as over against Jew, the Jew who has been circumcised in the flesh. Which one does God accept? Which one is God more concerned with? And it's the circumcision of the heart. It is this which he is most pleased with. And he moves on to this thing about being buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead, or out from among the dead. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now, I want to emphasize there what Paul is saying. Regarding this thing of baptism. Buried with him in baptism. Baptism follows after faith in Christ. Never before. As a matter of fact. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us that the only way in which we are placed into the body of Christ is by the Holy Spirit baptizing us into his body. A spirit baptism. Of which water baptism is our representation. So I say again, baptism And the physical aspect of baptism, that is in water, follows faith in Christ. Never does it come before. And the second thing I would say about that is when you look at scripture, look through all the epistles, and you'll not find one example of a believer who holds out faith in the hope of the glory of Christ who wasn't baptized. And so I say with all urgency, you know, if you're not baptized, and if you weren't baptized after you got saved, then you need to get baptized. You need to follow the Lord in obedience. That's the prescribed order that he's given to us. Now, going on down to um, verse 16... 
in view of what he has done for us then, he says, let no man judge you. This is the third thing that he warns us against. We are warned against being deceived in verse 4, against any man spoiling us through philosophy and vain deceit in verse 8. Now in verse 16, don't let any man judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of, any, uh, of, the, uh, of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. And notice how he returns right back to the body once again. The body is of Christ, and he is the head. And so the judgment that he's warning us against is to don't let someone rob you or condemn you because of your observance of meat or drink or a holy day or the new moon or the Sabbath. He's talking about the believers at Colossae. He says, don't let any man judge you in regard to those things. But remember, they're only the shadow of the things to come. Because the body is of Christ. That's the reality. Being in the body of Christ. Consequently, the last warning then, verse 18, let no man beguile you or defraud you. And the word beguile here and the word beguile in verse 4 are two different words. The word beguile here in verse 18 means to defraud you or rob you, to cheat you, to render a judgment against you concerning your reward or your prize regarding, he says here, a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up, by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head, there we see it again, from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, we see knit together again, increases with the increase of God. So what has Paul been, what is he aiming at, and what is he trying to tell us here in this letter that he wrote to the believers at Colossae. He has emphasized over and over that Christ is the head. You are the body. The body is held together with joints, ligaments, and knit together. And we are to be knit together, he says, in love, held together, bonded together, by that one common thing, along with, of course, as we saw earlier, faith. Faith and love together. In verse 20, he talks about the rudiments of the world again, those elementary principles. I don't know sometimes if we take that serious enough when we leave here, the things that we get involved in and the things that we connect ourselves with 
in the realm of the world. Paul says to avoid those things. Wherefore, he says, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to its ordinances? Why surrender ourselves? Why give in to those things? And he names them in verse 21. Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using after the commandments and the doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility. In other words, he's just saying in the vernacular, sounds good, has a good ring to it, has a good overtone to it, to avoid those things, to refrain from this or that. Paul says, avoid those things. That... that the world would keep you from the rudiments, the elementary, fundamental, basic principles of the world. You know, he uses that same word again over in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, where he talks about the first principles of Christ. The elementary, fundamental, fundamental principles concerning Christ. That's what he's speaking of here. And then he makes that great turn, that great application of what we are to do in view of this then. In view of what we have reserved in heaven for us, he tells us how to function and live as a Christian. Chapter 3, verse 1, first thing, set your affection on things above and not on the things of the earth. We've been over that verse many, many times. You know what verse 3 says. For you are dead. You died. And your life is hid with Christ in God. That is an incredible statement. To think my life is hid with Christ in the creator of the universe, in God. But because that is true, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. There is no other way to appear with Christ in glory than a life that is hid with Christ in God. And that comes from setting our affection on things above and not on the things of the earth. On things above and not on the rudiments of the world. Because he said that, in verse 5 he said, mortify Put to death your members which are upon the earth. I don't want to take it really any farther than that except to say that Paul has given us a purpose and a reason of what God is doing 
in those who have received the good news of the gospel, who understand the kingdom that is to come and the inheritance that he has laid up for us in heaven and the life that is to follow incumbent upon that reception, uh, that reception of that gospel. And it requires an extreme makeover. Home edition. <laughs> it requires an extreme makeover. I realize I've been being made over for all my life. And I will be for the rest of my life. And I trust that I'm following the pattern. And that the change that is taking place is sufficient to please my Heavenly Father. Because if it isn't, then I'm in trouble. I will stand before him one day to give an answer for that at his judgment seat. And so I had better put to death my members with respect to the things of this earth and keep my affections focused up there, up there, always up there. Now, you know what I've found out? I found out that's not necessarily an easy thing to do. But you know why it's not an easy thing to do? Because I'm not in here enough. If I'm here in this book, focused, and I have this word hidden in my heart, and I let this word form my heart and my mind, my thinking, then I can keep a mind that is focused on the things that are above. I'll know how to deal with things on the earth then because they're all temporary. They're all a shadow. They're all going away. They're all gone. And they're not going to last. And so over in chapter 3, verse 20, 23, he sums this up by saying, Whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. And I know literally that says, do it from the soul. The word heartily is the word suke. Whatever you're doing, do it from your soul. Do it from deep within, with purpose, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. It is him we serve. Doing wrong won't result and getting the reward. But doing right will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have a Father in heaven who cares about our needs, who is working a great and masterful plan for his creation, and that by your grace, 
you've chosen us and allowed us to participate and to be a part of that great plan. Lord, let us take up our responsibility and walk humbly before you to be willing to give up the things of earth right now, not just when you come back and say, okay, that's all over, but to give them up now, to recognize that what you have for us is far, far greater than anything that could be given to us by this whole world. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to walk dutifully in the light. As John tells us, you walk in the light so that we might have fellowship with you and so that we might walk in a manner that is pleasing to you and and brings joy to your heart and satisfaction to your soul because you see your children walking in truth. Let us do it, we pray, Father, unto your own honor and glory. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.